Hey GG peeps, we've got something a little different and special for this week's release. We're playing an indie game called The Machine by Adira and Fen Slattery, available on itch.io. This is an existential horror journaling game for as many players as you choose. Each player, receiving the journal in turn, tells a story, influenced by playing cards, of how their own development of the machine goes, and what fate befalls them in the end, so the journal may find its next author, or victim, depending on your perspective. Partially due to the nature of the game and the themes our authors chose to explore, this particular episode is going to be just beyond our usual PG-13 rating by a little bit. Not far into our territory, but more mature themes than we felt PG-13 fully covered. If you usually listen with your kids, you might want to listen to this one solo before deciding if it's appropriate for them. Because even grown folks have topics they would prefer not hearing, I want to outline a few of the more troubling topics that are in this episode. Explicit topics include adult language, horror themes such as psychological distress, occult themes, and depression. Implied topics include suicide, self-harm, and murder. And things hinted at are childhood emotional trauma and demonic influence. Now, if none of that has sent you away... Does this device truly have supernatural power? Or is its influence all in the heads of its creators? All I know is that should you find an old battered journal scattered with diagrams and designs you feel compelled to make real, take care that you yourself are not consumed by the machine. June the 13th, 1902. William Fertzen the First. Mary, my loving wife, has gifted me this journal that I might at last have a place to record my various thoughts and ideas as I... The word attempt is struck through. ...work to invent something that will truly revolutionize our modern world. I dedicate everything I record here to her. I've taken quite a few pieces of existing sound equipment and dismantled them all to better understand how everything connects to each other. I've been speaking with a man at the local phonograph company store, and he says we're about to see some new technology in wax. Very exciting! This is, of course, far from public knowledge, but he knows me to be both a discerning customer and no gossip. With this in mind, I want to find a way to reconfigure the horn and needle to better amplify that which we hear coming from the record itself. The world has barely begun to explore how we might listen to recorded sound. I'm certain I can come up with something. Several diagrams and musings litter the next several pages. Entries are sparsely dated and informal, with very little of interest to the average reader. July the 20th, 1902. Three of Hearts. I have been such a fool. I showed Eric at the record store what I'd been working on. My hope was to share the enthusiasm of a fellow audio fanatic. Instead, I find that he's copied my notes and has sold some of my designs to his employer. When I confronted him, he denied the same, claiming that I must be inspired by the same muses. Utter nonsense. I will not be sharing my work anymore. From here forward, it is mine and Mary's alone. Our little technological babe. More diagrams, some angry ramblings, continued improvement on the original design. 
September the 12th, 1902. Ten of Hearts. Mary has grown concerned about the amount of time I spend in the basement tinkering away. She has arranged a beach vacation for us. I used to love the beach as a younger man. As we travel, I can't help but think of the device in the basement at home. The scenery we pass reminds me of its intricate design. The sounds of wildlife have me thinking of how it will sound when it's complete. I just want to get back to its screws, gears, and posts. It's destined to become something greater than any of us can understand. I don't know that she truly appreciates that. Everything I've done, everything I'm doing, it's all a testament to her. She shall see. Soon enough. Soon enough. The next few pages are burnt at the edges. The diagrams inside have been ruined and made warped by exposure to water. October the 25th, 1902. Queen of Clubs. I nearly lost everything. All my progress, Mary, our home, everything at once. I was experimenting with using fire to cure some of the components. When one of the candles fell over onto one of my diagrams, as I rushed to grab some water to put it out, it spread to the table, and the loose drawings scattered about my workshop. I couldn't fight it well, so I ran out to the garden, grabbed a bucket of water, and doused everything all at once. To my eager surprise, my machine is untouched. It remains beautiful, unmarred, but incomplete. Mary was quite cross. She said my inventing had nearly cost us our lives. I know what the true problem here is. I became unfocused. Mary seems almost jealous of the care and attention I give my work. I cannot afford another mistake like this. If something had happened to the device, I fear I could not go on. Mary will understand, surely. The following drawings and sketches have taken on an almost feverish nature. Scratches litter the page at random. The diagrams become less and less clear. Several pages in, the burnt edges and water-stained pages give way to more and more furious sketching. Doodles in the margins begin to form. Faces weeping, screaming, or both. These faces seem to be working their way into the design of this revolutionary audio machine. December the 28th, 1902. I showed Mary the progress I've made. She was surprised by how large it has gotten. But when I played her a record on the turntable, oh, the look on her face was one of wonder. The complexity of sound it is capable of is nothing short of miraculous. Mary did seem a touch hurt that I'd missed Christmas, but I think she understands the importance of what I'm doing here now. Now that she's heard the sound, she can appreciate what I've been hearing in my own head for months now. She can finally see how close we are to true greatness. To everyone that ever doubted. To Mary's parents, whom I overheard perhaps too loudly, exclaimed that my machine would be the death of me, Mary, or both of us. They are short-sighted. Mary and I together, we can do this. We'll show them. We'll show them all. Several pages are ripped out. Those sections of the design lost forever. The next entry has a spattering of blood across it in small drops. July the 3rd, 1902. I'd taken a day off from working on the machine. 
at Mary's insistence, taken a trip into town to get an ice cream, something I hadn't done in a very long time. The weather is particularly nice for it. Hot, but not too hot. When I returned, I found that she'd taken my mallet, a tool for construction, for building something greater than ourselves. She... The text becomes significantly shakier, as if written by an unsteady hand. Pieces of the machine were everywhere, scattering the floor as I entered. A fistful of my diagrams were leaving her hand and passing into the boiler never to be retrieved. Her face red with shame, she told me that it is an abomination against God. It must be destroyed. I cannot understand where she might have gotten these insane ideas, but she had to be stopped. I had to. The text starts and stops several times as the author tries to gather their thoughts. This is my confession and my final entry. The world is not ready for what I have created. There is no proof of this greater than my wife's betrayal. What kind of god would pit a wife against her husband? Would drive her to destroy the thing that would elevate them both eternally into the history books? No god I could ever believe in. The machine is now beyond repair, but still I can hear its song. It is as if it speaks to me, calls to me. I think, perhaps, I might just... The entry ends at this point, a single line of ink running off the page. 28 May, 1915. The Diary of Cooper Monaghan. Of course we'd all heard about the sinking. It's hard not to when it's all over the paper. Near as I could understand, the crowd sent that boat to the bottom and killed damn near 1,200 while they were at it. It's just awful. I usually walk along the beach in the evenings, and in the last few weeks I've seen debris washing up. No doubt where it came from. There were some Americans that died. We all figured this is what would bring them into the war but they seem to be sticking to their guns and praying that this resolves itself before they have to do anything. Easy for them to say, an ocean away from the fighting. This evening's walk was a little more interesting than most. It was the funniest thing. It looked like a crate had washed up with the tide, so I mucked my way through the sand to see about it. Wasn't a crate, it turns out. Some old steamer trunk. I popped it open. You might call it morbid, rooting through a dead person's luggage, but I was just curious. I thought maybe I'd find some identification to find next of kin or something. It was mostly clothes. Closest I came was a strange fragment of a journal. It wasn't too terribly waterlogged. I leafed through it quickly with the last of the light before hauling it all back to the house. I dried out the pages and gave it a read. It's interesting. Some scrawls about a record player or something. Seems like the gent got a little obsessed with building it. Had a falling out with his missus. It seemed harmless enough. I don't think it was taking up too much space. There's some diagrams. Maybe I'll give it a go. When you're retired and there's a war on, you need something to keep your mind occupied. 2nd June, 1915. Oh, this is good fun. 
I had some experience with electrical mechanics when I was working for the railroad, and it's nice to use that bit of my mind again and even learn a little bit more. I've managed to scrounge some bits and bobs to get started. It's quite crude right now, not at all up to snuff with what my long-ago mate from the journal built, but it's some movement in the right direction. I managed to make it sound off when I connected it to the speaker. Nothing sophisticated, but nothing ever is at the beginning. 6 July, 1915 I got the letter today. Royal stamp on it and everything. I knew what it was before I even opened it. My boy's dead. They sank his ship somewhere in the North Sea. I have to stay busy. I knew this was a possibility when he joined up. He was all I had left. I wish I could hear his sweet voice one more time. Just once more. Could I? 30 August, 1915. Had to look at the calendar to see the date. I've been mucking about something furious on this machine. Hasn't been complete isolation, though. Since I got the news, I've been spending a lot of time with the father. I go up there every morning. We play some chess. I talk. He listens. He's a good man, and he's saying all the right things. And truth be told, I think he appreciates someone coming to talk to him without having to be in a confessional. The other day, he was talking about prayer and how it can give you strength whether or not it's answered. So I asked him if he's ever had prayers answered. Not directly, he said, and not because I've asked for anything. You close your eyes, open your heart, and ask for help or guidance in making the world a bit better. Those are the kind of prayers that get answers. I asked him if he's ever spoken to God, how some revivalist folks will tell you that God speaks to them, you know? I don't think God speaks to anyone, he said, at least not in the kind of way that you and I are right now. I think anyone who tells you difference probably needs to come ask me for forgiveness as a liar, but I do believe that you can get impressions or ideas of his will, but it's a test of your faith and character how you interpret it. And sometimes he speaks through others whether you realize it or not. It was getting on about lunchtime then, so I thanked the father for some good games and good conversation and went on my way home for a bite. But on the way back, though, I felt an impression. September. 1915. Day unknown. It was just one syllable, one fragment of a sound, but there was no mistake in what it was. I've been working that wonderful little machine for the past few weeks. It felt like I'd had a bloody revelation and my mind was seeing everything so completely and clearly and I finally knew the purpose of this thing beyond it being a mess of wires and switches and speakers. Is someone knocking at the door? And all the while I was working on it, I'd worn calluses on my palms and holes in the knees of my denims from praying so much. I felt like, I don't know, I felt like I could invest all my prayers into that machine, channel my faith, direct it, guide it. Is someone knocking at the door again? I don't know what day it is. Nothing was happening. I knew it was wired upright. More knocking. It was getting power. Knocking. The speaker just hissed. No answer. I hear a shout from outside. Someone calling my name. Sounds like the father. No answer. It doesn't work. The damn thing didn't work. Of course it didn't. What a fucking stupid idea. By this point, I was in the corner of the basement, curled up into a little ball. I felt stupid for trying and foolish for hoping. Embarrassed, even though God was the only one who could see me. I had to get a grip on myself. He was gone. He wasn't coming back. I've got to stop this. Take the thing apart. It's a bloody windmill and I'm done tilting. It's 
It's reminding me too much of what I'd lost. And then, it crackled. Thirty November, nineteen eighteen. The Diary of Cooper Monahan. Armistice was a few weeks ago. I've had a lot of years to get my head back on straight since I lost Connor. I needed all of them. Been a long time since I wrote down my thoughts. Father Campbell told me I'd gone kind of far off there by the end. He'd been coming around the house to check in on me after not seeing me for a couple weeks. He was just about to leave when he heard me screaming. He busted in the window and climbed inside. He said he heard me carrying on and ran downstairs. He found me all right. Well, he found someone, but I'm not sure I was at all there. He said I was on my knees in front of that damn machine with not a thread of clothes on me. I was talking, he said, but I wasn't saying a thing at all. Later on, he told me he'd heard of that before, but he'd never seen it in person. Called it G-L-O-S-S-O-L-A-L-I-A. Sure enough, I can write it right there, but damned if I can pronounce it right. He said I'd passed out after a few minutes, so he sent for the doctor. I woke up about a week later at home. The father was there with me. He said he and a few of the neighbors had taken turns looking after me. God bless him. I asked about the machine. The father frowned. He said he'd been trying to figure out what happened to me after he and the doctor took me upstairs. He found this journal. Well, not this one, because I've transferred most of it from the old one to these sheets via typewriter in the last year. He read it. He said the last coherent entry was September 28th, and after that it was all gibberish. He prayed on it a little bit and felt the best option was just to take the damn machine apart. Didn't figure it could do me any good anymore. He buried the parts and promised not to tell me where. I was in such a state. He's probably right. Even though he'd read it already, I told him all about my experience, what I heard, what I felt. He said it didn't look like I'd eaten much at all for days before he found me, and that might have really fogged up my mind. He's probably right. He was very kind and comforting, as he said that I had just imagined hearing anything. He's probably right. I've got too much history and too many emotions tied up in this place. Now that the war's over, I think I'm going to get out of here once things settle down a little more. Even outside the war, this island's got its own problems, and I need a bit of a calmer setting. My sister's boy sent me a letter the other day. He and Connor had been close before his mom and dad moved their family to America, and he's asked me to come stay with them for as long as I want. He was always such a good lad. I'm leaving sometime in the next few weeks. I'll miss this little town. I'll miss the beach. I'll miss the father. He was probably right. January, 1961. The Journal of One Sacred Eye. For the sake of our records, I shall document our finding of these sacred texts thus. January 18th, 1961. Brother Twinstone found these luminary texts bound in a crude leather folio, set to be auctioned off as part of a bulk book lot from the estate sale of one Emma Bradley. I have already requested Brother Comet Tail and Sister Wildflower look into Mrs. Bradley's family history. There may be 
living descendants. Recognizing the transcendental nature of the literature within, Brother Twinstone laid claim to the folio at his earliest convenience and brought it home to us. No state nor government may, in good moral standing, claim that information alike to this is not the people's right, first and foremost. What is sound to us? What does it mean to perceive sound? It enters our ears, our fallible, beautiful ears, and we interpret it. Like language, we translate and mistranslate. We play a game of telephone with the universe. Ring, ring, ring. Will you answer these texts, these journals? They are a gift. Thank you, O universe. May our mortal minds use this knowledge to their fullest, and may our immortal selves use it evermore after. We shall be a guiding light for mankind, leading our species to the mysteries beyond the birthing pains of this fecund coil. To that end, I have begun my study of Mr. Monaghan's and Mr. Firthson's work. There is the beginnings of the sacred frequencies within them, but like eggs left alone beyond the nest, they were never meant to hatch. A shame. No mention of any children in Mr. Firthson's testimony. The higher vibrations may have distilled to the genetic structure of the subsequent generations. Alas, this is why we are here. We begin building immediately. The divine will not be made to wait. October, 1963. My heart is heavy, O universe. I thought I had prepared Brother Twinstone better for his ascension. As the one to find the sacred text, it was only right he would be the chosen first. Yet I am betrayed. What impurity, what inferiority of your soul caused this brother? You came so close. The body was left gelatinous, free of form, of color, of shape. It was beautiful. For one shining moment I could see it. He was beginning to achieve the Tao, the sacred self, the self without the constraints of the flesh. Why then, brother, did you try to escape? I know it now for what it is, the shock of the heinous breach wearing off. You gave in to fear, you curdling pig slop of a man. If you had simply borne the song of the divine for but a few moments longer, you could have sloughed your flesh and been free, the truest dream of all mankind. I shall have to purge this flesh fear from the aspirants. I will start with Sister Cedar Smoke. Perhaps her time disposing of Twinstone's leftovers will have instilled the first of such lessons. December, 1963. Sister Cedar Smoke has proven resistant to my lessons. 
I devised a series of electroshock therapies as they most closely align with the effects on the body the Song of Ascension creates. At least in the beginning stages. Alas, Brother Comet Tail has sabotaged my machine, shutting it down too forcefully during its warm-up period. He then requested to take the sister's place. Be the first to attempt my revolutionary methods of spiritual cleansing. We must always exult ambition in the name of enlightenment, so I have elected to forego punishment at this time and grant him his request. Thinking on the matter, we cannot say that the electroshock would have been any better than prior attempts. We cannot Pavlov our way to ascension. It trains the mind, which in turn trains the body, but never once touches upon the soul. So, what is the nature of the soul, and how might one change it? A question our beliefs were founded upon. We have sought the bloodlines of the enlightened and found common ground with them so it can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that enlightenment is distilled within the genes of those who dare ascension. Is it then the very attempt that empowers the soul? Why then do the failed births of my predecessors stand? A breeding program is unconscionable. We will see ascension in our lifetime. We will cross that starlit bridge. June, 1964. Federal officers came to the compound today. Agent James Sherwood, badge number, and Neil Greger, badge number. They were asking questions. Looking for a sister cedar smoke, uh, we were able to get rid of them easily enough. Sister cedar smoke has been ordered into penance, solitary meditations for the next mm, three months, until this ill she has brought upon us has passed. We are unbothered, however. Agent Sherwood has a lovely family. Agent Gregor, from what information we have gathered, is lovingly close to his paternal grandfather. Such upstanding young man. August, 1964. The universe sings and we listen. We try to sing back to match existence in chorus. We fail. I have begun listening to the song of ascension through the padded walls we keep it behind. Brother Comet Tail has become adept at artfully activating the machine and escaping before facing the full effects. He may be ready for an extended session with it soon. Though dampened, the song is still as beautiful as I had hoped. Listening to it, one feels like the sea. Massive and without form, flowing in and out of mortality and the beyond, sublime in spirit. Yet I discovered its greatest effect when I began singing along with it. Beings of light, vaguely humanoid in shape, filled my vision. 
They stepped to me, and I knew they could see me for what I was, a seed of the divine. The disciples were called forth, and as one we sang with the machine. The beings of light came upon us, came upon me, and one in particular resplendent in gold tried to speak to me. He said, and we raised our voices ever louder, grasping for harmony with the divine. Path, a message from the divine itself. We are on the right path, my brothers and sisters. We are so, so close. February, 1965. It would seem... Sister Cedar Smoke has been speaking with Agent Gregor when she goes into town for her groceries. She left yesterday afternoon and did not return until this morning. She says she has not said a word to him in regards to our work here, but I find that a nigh impossibility given that she spent the night with him. To give in to the pleasures of the flesh after all of our efforts she is useless to me now. Oh, universe, may you not suffer when she faces the song tomorrow. February, 1965. It worked. By all that is divine, it worked. The taint of carnality must have been too fresh. To weigh upon her soul, she is free, the first of us, free. Um, she had always been so studious, uh, taking to my lessons and my methods, the fastest of all my disciples. It is gratifying to see her pass that starlit bridge. What could she have been feeling in that moment? Her brow knit, her teeth clenched such determination. Brother Comet Tail will be next. Uh, he was always second to Sister Cedar Smoke in studies, and he has made remarkable progress in his resiliency training. I will go last, of course. As with the great Siddhartha Gautama, the truly enlightened must stay behind a time to ensure all may reach Nirvana. January, 1967. I... I'm sacred I, last of the seekers of light. Whosoever finds this recording, please show it to the world. Humanity must know that there is an escape. The universe is calling to us with open arms. We need not be trapped in these mortal shells. It is your duty to uplift your fellow man with this knowledge. All of us who walk before you believe in you. But first, my future disciples bear witness to ascension. I give you the song of ascension. The symphony of light. <laughs> Thank you.
my brothers, my sisters, you have come. And now I come to you. Finally, we may all be together free of form one with the astral sea. Yes, 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 this is the path, this is the... Sister? Is that you? I have come to join you on the path beyond. Sister? Hold, sister, I cannot fully understand you yet. Hold! and like... No, no, I am meant to ascend. I am meant to ascend the highest of all and pure. And purest of all I am. March 1975. Test, test, hello, hello, Diane Cartwell. Diane Cartwell. Diane Cartwell. Test, test, this is good paper. You can find all sorts of things in thrift stores. Test, test, hello, 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 Diane Cartwell. Diane Abigail Cartwell. Test, test, test. To do. Pick Simon and Lee up from school. Change clothes. Reminder, make sure their uniform is washed. Drop off at practice. Make dinner. Check pantry, see what we have. Grocery shopping. Eggs, milk, frozen meals, spinach, tuna, rubber bands, juice, batteries. Call plumber. Richard S. 888-902-3405. Fix cabinet. Renewed license. Call L back about the deadline extension. Write next chapter. Ah, I don't have time anymore. I need something to help get everything I want done. Schematics? I'll start doodling. 19 March 1975. Test, test, test. Diane Cartwell, Diane Cartwell. Flipped through the rest of this notebook while I was waiting at the DMV. There's some real funky imaginations folks had. It reminds me of the boys' comics. What a hoot. I told the lady at the DMV about my machine, and she was suitably impressed. She said she could use one herself. I'll need to make it simple and cheap so other folks can benefit. To do. Hardware store. Grocery store. Still. Etc. Peanut butter. Bananas. Call L again about the deadline extension. Meet with plumber. Pick up Simon and Lee. Call S about setting up a carpool. Go to library. Check out books on engineering and electronics. Write chapter. 
Although, I won't need to bother with this right now if I can get my little machine to work. I can do this. I fixed our toaster and our radio when they broke last year, and once taken apart, those little machines seemed much simpler than they appeared. Just like most things in life. Once it's all organized into its components, it's not as complicated as you think. If I can just plan this out right, I'll have all the time to do everything I need each day. My boys would be so impressed. 14 April 1979. To do. Get groceries, eggs, butter, broccoli, pasta, frozen pizza, drop books off at library, edit recent draft, mail back review for L, call bank, return Coach Frank's call, call... None of this matters. Disconnect phone line. I've got this little earworm stuck in my brain lately, looping around. Not sure where I heard it from. The radio, maybe? Simon and Lee are peeved at me for being late picking them up last week from practice. And the week before that. They just don't understand that when I'm done, I'll always be able to be there for them. There will be enough me to go around for once. Maybe... Maybe I am being a bad mother. They waited out there in the dark, and Sarah had to drive them back, and she's been asking questions, and I can tell the other parents are starting to talk behind my back. If I were in their place, I think I was negligent, too. But it will be summer break soon. Maybe I can even get the kids interested in helping me a bit with the machine when they're home. All those little bits and pieces are tough for me to work on. A bit of useful energy helping out is just what I need. And with Simon's interest in fixing up his bike so much, I'm sure he'll be drawn in by the technical bits. Hmm. I should take the phone apart to check it as maybe a sound receptor? 5th of June, 1979. To do. Groceries. Eggs. Screws. 3B electrical wiring. Copper alloy. Salted butter. Sign Lee up for summer camp. Pick Simon up from Sarah's. Or is he at school? I can be both at once, right? Be both a good mom to them and also work on the machine at night? They won't have to know, and when we finish, I'll be forgiven for breaking my little promise. It'll just be a one-off note in this much bigger song anyways. I can remember all the times I was furious at my parents for this or that, and all of it seems so small now. Simon's young. He just doesn't understand yet what it's like to make tough choices out of love. I love you. I love you. I love you. 15 July 1979 To do. Finish the machine. I can feel it. Just a few more last details. Thank goodness I've had more time to work with the kids at Sarah's. The crescendo of the finish line is audible. 15 August 1979. A note from school asking about Simon and Lee's well-being is taped in. Dear Miss Cartwell, we've been trying to reach you. I feel really embarrassed looking at this all, like I'm waking up from a bad dream. Except it wasn't really bad. It was good. It was every hope and promise I'd put aside all these years that lingered 
rotting at the edge of my tongue, and now I could fully bite down and consume it. I failed. It doesn't want to work for me. I guess I wasn't devoted enough. And now I've come back and all I see are the pieces of it, neatly organized into a monster that wanted to consume me. It was never as complicated as I wanted it to be. The house is so silent. To do, dismantle the machine, fix Simon's bike, reinstall phone line, call the bank, call L, pay bills, groceries. May 3rd, 1987. Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts, Conservation Department. A gift. You were a gift. Dr. Reinhardt had the gall to call you a gift when he procured you from the Lauer estate. I watched him practically salivating as you were presented to him along with various odds and ends that I assume are associated with the schematics crudely drawn within your pages. I of course am using schematics loosely in this context. You are simply the manifesto of madmen. Why Dr. Reinhardt was so keen to acquire you, I will never know. What more, he is insisting on an entire exhibit. A whole room dedicated to a book and a pile of gears. We could have placed you in the rare books room, even a glass case, but no. I have the egregious task of restoring you and that bucket of bolts that came with you. Dr. Reinhardt has even asked me to document my process. We're part of the history, Leslie. We're part of it now. He practically spat. So this is me obliging. I have spent the last two days removing your bindings. Your thread was wearing dangerously thin. Any adhesive that was used barely clung to you and most likely contained asbestos. Pages were torn, waterlogged, and somehow simultaneously burned. You are currently laid out across several steel tables in my workshop to be documented, scanned, and catalogued. Dr. Reinhardt is insisting on a full restoration for you and for what he keeps calling the machine. The machine is not in as bad a shape as I keep droning on about. It has the general appearance of a late 19th century gramophone, which corresponds to the first journal entry in 1902. While it contains similarities to Berliner's gramophone, it's off is the best way I can describe it. It's not just the dimensions, it's huge even by early technological standards. I'm assuming that was in part due to it being created by an amateur audio enthusiast. He wouldn't have had the means to authentically replicate a genuine gramophone, but he shouldn't have been able to create this machine at all. There are techniques in here that weren't devised for decades. There are components that are somehow both oppositional and redundant. It shouldn't work. This leads me to believe this entire thing is a hoax or a long line of auditory hallucinations brought on by the stress of making an impossible machine. But if anyone's going to get it working, it'll be me. June 15, 1987. Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts, Conservation Department. We've begun to hang your exhibit. Dr. Reinhardt has decided that each page should be reprinted and hung so everyone can read them. 
Then the machine will sit in the center of the room on a raised pedestal, playing Mozart. It's excessive. A solid wall of nothing but scribbles. It's like a Twombly exhibit with half the talent and twice the arrogance. They've even installed some new accent lights claiming to be the least damaging wavelength on the market, guaranteed to never yellow your artwork. I've tried to explain that's not how it works. Light is still light. Exposure hours are based on lux, not frequency, and they will build up over time. I'm not even sure why we're worried about yellowing replicas. We can just print out new ones, but what do I know? I'm just the conservator. All I know is that they hum so loudly I cannot even think. They buzz so high-pitched. Sometimes I think it's just tinnitus in my ears, but when I leave the museum, it's gone. However, I'm the only one who hears it. I'm twice the age of the electricians. Their young ears should be able to hear it, and yet they stare at me blankly when I ask them to fix it. We're still months away from opening. Maybe someone else will hear it by then. September 1st, 1987, Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts, Conservation Department. The board wants a demonstration of the machine before opening the exhibit. This is unfortunate. I'm not sure I can get the machine working by the opening date, let alone a month earlier. Dr. Reinhardt is taking the journal as gospel. All these people swear they got the machine working with far less support, mechanical knowledge, and funding. No one could figure this out from the rudimentary IKEA instructions I've been given. Let me be clear, I am very good at what I do. I have performed miracles on pieces they thought would never be presentable ever again. But asking for a working replica of something only rumored to work in a matter of months is ridiculous. October 17th, 1987. What do you want from me? I have followed the instructions to the letter somehow. The text is almost intelligible, but I've been able to decipher it enough to create something that should work. I don't know why it doesn't. There's something missing, but I have no idea how to even go about figuring it out. The answer is there. I know it. I know it. It's just, it's just not here. It's just not in these pages. I don't know if it was lost, if someone ripped out a page, if they never even wrote it down. Why won't you tell me? Please. I just need to know. I just need to get this working. Then you'll get your exhibit. I can move on. I can't lose this job. Please. October 18th, 1987. Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts Conservation Department. It played. It made a noise. Unfortunately, Noise is the only thing I can use to explain it, but it sure did make it. I don't know why the machine suddenly started working. Maybe I turned it off and back on enough times. It was almost like a voice. It was speaking as though in full sentences, but not in real words. I'm no linguist. I can barely speak English some days, so it could have been a language I've never heard. It sounded so much like something I had heard before. It was so familiar. It sounded like a memory. If only I could just remember how to hear it, how to understand it. It was gentle, like a mother singing nonsense to her child. 
It stopped as suddenly as it started. I'll get it working again. I have to. October 27, 1987. Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts Conservation Department. Today I stood in the room where you are being exhibited. It's a haunting room. Slate gray walls 12 feet tall covered in your framed pages like pinned butterflies. It seems so disrespectful displaying you like that. The lights were still screaming. I did my best to ignore them as I placed the machine on its pedestal. Played the noise again. It was even more beautiful than before. It resonated against the walls in a sublime tone. I could feel the music surrounding me, embracing me. Hypnotic. It was hypnotic. I could stand in that room forever, listening to the unintelligible words flowing out of the machine. When the music stopped, the room was so silent. I had never stood in such silence before. I realized it was never the lights screaming. It was you, screaming to be heard, to release your music into the world. You knew I was the only one here who could do it. You only spoke to me. You had to get my attention. I was stubborn and prideful, and you and your wonderful machine have cured me of that. I understand why Dr. Reinhardt wanted to acquire you so badly. I can't wait to show him what we've done. November 3rd, 1987. Dr. Leslie Field of the Heritage Institute of Massachusetts, Conservation Department. Dr. Reinhardt is thrilled. I brought him to listen to the machine. I watched as a look of pure ecstasy crossed his face. His eyes glazed over as he swayed absentmindedly. The song was louder and warmer than ever. It filled the entire museum with its evocative melody. Inside its embrace, the outside world washes away. It's just us and the music. The only problem is it doesn't consistently play. Some days when I press play, it's just static or even worse, silence. Deafening, absolute silence. I can't stand that silence. I will sit there hitting play over and over for just a few notes to spill out. It's older technology. It makes sense that there will be some bugs. The board meets tomorrow. Dr. Reinhardt isn't as worried as I am. He seems so confident it'll work. If this doesn't work, I don't know what I'll do. They may pull the exhibit. The historical significance is negligible, according to them. They just don't understand. It's not even about the history. It's about today and here. It's about making history here today. They just can't understand until they hear it. Please, don't abandon me now. They have to hear it. They will hear it. They will all hear it. November 4th, 1987. The board met today. We gathered in the hallowed hall where copies of your pages hung watching, like so many eyes. The men in gray suits wandered around indifferently, perusing the walls. Eventually, the president called me over to start the machine. As I approached the pedestal, I could hear your screaming getting louder in my ears. My head pounded. I could only see the machine illuminated by a single spotlight. I pressed play. 
the music flowed effortlessly. Beautifully as ever, I sighed in relief and looked around. The board members were not smiling. They looked confused, concerned, anxious, angry. I asked what was wrong. There was scoffing and the word atrocity was thrown around. How could they say that? Dr. Reinhardt took over trying to assuage their fears. As he spoke, the music shifted. Louder, shriller, it hurt. I tried to turn it off, but Dr. Reinhardt pulled me away. Couldn't he see it was in pain? It needed me. The music reached a startling crescendo. It reverberated off the walls, shaking your pages. No one seemed fazed by this. I shouted at them to leave. They were hurting the machine with their pride, their contempt, their scorn, these non-believers. I could barely hear my scream over the cacophony. They just stared dumbfounded. How could they not hear it? Glory personified. Then silence. The coldest silence I have ever experienced. I knew Dr. Reinhardt was speaking to me, but I could hear no words. I could see the machine still playing. I could not hear the music. I'd failed it, and it had abandoned me. Dr. Reinhardt has given me a few weeks off to recover, at least to recover best as I can. They have taken the machine from me, destroyed all copies of you. They want me to put you in a glass case. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you. I need to make the machine again. I need to share your song with the world, even if I will never hear it again. October 24th, 2023. Jamie Vance. I finally made it. After 10 long years of couch surfing, moving back home, renting rooms, and endless roommates, I finally managed to get a place of my own. It may only be a one-bedroom condo on the not-great side of town, but damn it, it's my one-bedroom condo on the not-great side of town. Ah, <sighs> oh, man, I'm whooped. I pretty much had to move everything myself. All my friends were too busy, and I wasn't about to ask Gina to help. Ah, oh, Gina. You cheat on me, you break up with me, and then criticize me for doing the financially irresponsible thing of moving out? Fuck off. She's just mad because she's going to be on hook for all the rent and the bills again. And that's even after I gave her two months of rent just to shut her up about it. This month alone, she kept going on and on about whether or not she'd be able to pay her bills. Bitch, you lived with me for four years and you didn't think to maybe save some of that money up? Maybe you need to hit up the other dudes you were banging while we were together. Hell, when we moved in together, you were the one that wouldn't stop bragging about how you made more than enough to pay for everything and said you were allowing me to split the bills so I didn't feel emasculated. Well, the joke's on you, bitch. I saved up and I earned my freedom. Congratulations. You played yourself. Ah, oh, freedom, man. It's still hard to believe I'm finally here. You know that meme where it's an empty apartment with just like a single chair and a TV and the gaming consoles and it says, 
when you come home to peace of mind, that's how I feel right now. I've got no furniture to speak of, but I got my music gear, my air mattress, and a lamp. That's a good enough start for me, man. Oh, I almost forgot. I found this book in the back of the closet. It's called The Machine by Leslie Field. It looks old, but I could stand to start reading again. At least till I can get the internet turned back on. Oh, man, it's so quiet here. Just the silence in my tinnitus. I could get used to this. November 13th, 2023. Man, why did I not look into getting a place on my own sooner? Jesus, it is amazing what one can do once you get away from toxicity and not be crushed under the weight of someone else's BS drama. I don't remember the last time I've had so much energy. It's kind of manic energy because I've been having trouble sleeping here and there, but I think that's mostly just because I'm still settling into the new place and I don't have to listen to Gina's TV blasting through the walls. I didn't think having silence at night would be an adjustment, but I guess when you get used to a certain way of living, any major change is going to be disruptive to the system. Oh, but thanks to all that energy, my place is set up. I got the couch, the big screen TV, the bed, the whole nine yards. It feels like I'm finally living as an adult for the first time in my life. Not only that, but I've been hammering away at my music, making some of the best work in years. It feels like the, the, the muse looked up to me and said, you know what? You were stuck with that soulless harpy for so long. Boom. Here's all the inspiration. Have at it. The only drawback so far is I haven't had too much time to really hang out with my friends as a result. And it's understandable. Everyone's busy with their families and everything. It feels like my life kind of got stuck while everyone else's life got to progress. It's frustrating. Um, you know, maybe next year I'll jump back into the dating scene. But for now, solitude's been good for me. Once the holiday is over, I'll see about reconnecting with some peeps. I'm sure things are just hectic for them right now, and they don't need their mopey single friend imposing upon them. It just gives me more time to build up my music catalog. There's this one melody I haven't quite been able to get out of my head lately. I can't seem to find the right combination of synths and instruments to recreate it. I tried to hum it out for my boy Brian at the used gear shop, as he's got perfectly good pitch, and you can usually suss out things like that. He seemed to dig it, and he said he would do what he can and get back to me. I haven't really had the chance to go back and talk to him about it. I'll try to do that this week before shopping season kicks in. By the way, I've been reading The Machine a bunch now. I think I've read through it at least five times. It's a collection of short stories about people hearing things and being compelled to build machines that like usually lead to their ruin. Like one entry was set during the great war. One was like a seventies housewife, like neglecting her children. I think another one involved like a cult or something. I have to read that, reread that part. I think my favorite is William. He's the one I can relate to the most. He was a loving husband who seemed to do everything for his wife. And he got the idea to build the machine and all she ever tried to do was stop him from making it. And she was the reason he was building it in the first place. Like, 
Even his own family was talking shit on him. And then when he finally completed it, what did his wife do? She sent him out for some ice cream and fucking smashed it to pieces. <laughs> I wonder if she's some distant relative to Gina. Because that's the same type of shit she would have pulled. You know, in the story, it was strongly implied that William killed his wife. And I gotta say, I can't blame him. I remember when Gina broke one of my favorite guitars, and it took all of my self-restraint to keep from catching a felony, if you know what I mean. Imagine spending all of that time working your ass off to build something you love, something that you earned, only to have it destroyed by the so-called love of your life. I'm not saying he was right with what he did, but I understand. Whew. Oh, wow. That, uh, that went to a dark place. But I guess that's what a good book does, right? Sucks you into its world. Have you em emphasized with its characters? The world is so detailed as well. Like, there's a ton of illustrations and diagrams, like, down to the, like, centimeter measurements of the different parts and instruments and everything that people used. Man, Leslie Field really took her time and really wanted to make this seem real. Anyway, I should be going to bed. The Red Bull is wearing off, and I'm pretty sure it's not good for me to be drinking six of those just to get through the day. I'll put the book down tonight and put some calming music on. Thankfully, it's a Friday, so I can catch up on sleep tomorrow. You know, maybe I'll look into some of those components at work next week. I think we got a good amount of the cogs and stuff. I've never really tried building my own instrument. And since I'm not really going anywhere for the holidays, this will be a good project to help me pass the time. December 25th, 2023. Merry Christmas indeed. Another grand holiday that the holidays use to get you to buy their products all in the name of family and friendship and love peace on earth goodwill towards all at least until the stores open up and everyone tramples over each other just to get to the latest gadget or flat screen tv that's been marked up only to be placed on sale so people can pretend they didn't get ripped off Ugh. oh d it, don't mind me I've been celebrating with copious amounts of eggnog and chicken nuggets and chicken nuggets. Except with less eggnog and well, except with less egg or nog and with more coke and rum. I'm celebrating, you see. Three months fresh out of hell, and my life has never been better. No having to drive to Gina's in-laws to listen to their stupid political arguments and wondering why I haven't made Gina, why I haven't made Gina an honest woman yet. I'll tell you why. There hasn't been an honest bone in her body since I stopped banging her. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh, if I still had her parents' number, I'd probably call them and tell them that right now. But fortunately, sober me knows how to keep drunk of me from drunk dialing people. Took me a few years and cost me a few friendships, but I learned, damn it. 
can't piss people off when you don't call or text anyone, right? Oh, oh the, no, but the, the real reason I'm celebrating is I have made such progress on the machine lately. It turns out the parts were super easy to get a hold of. Big ups to the industrial revolution, right? Revo- revolution, right? Anyway, I, I thought it was going to be tough to build. Like, I've never really tried building anything on my own, thanks to my old man. He used to tell me that I wasn't mechanically inclined. Actually, he said I was a useless pussy, but that's splitting hairs. Anyway, back to the machine, actually. Uh, but I, I, I got the parts together and I started working on this thing and it was like, like it all just came into my head how to build it. Like, like that one movie where the dude is at the poker table and, and he sees all the formulas and stuff. Uh, ah, damn, I can't remember. It doesn't matter, but that's how it was for me. It's like, I knew how to build it the second I started working on it. I mean, yeah, I had I had a few false starts at first, like had to get over my old man's voice in my head telling me I couldn't do it. But there was this this other voice, like this really beautiful and encouraging voice telling me that I'm the one to make this machine real. And I think I think I know how to make it better than the rest. You see the in the book, everyone's idea was to make something like a, a like a gramophone or a record player, which is like fine, like if you have a record or something to play back with, you know. But from what I re- what I saw, like no one really had it. Like they were using other people's records. They didn't have a record of their own. And the answer's so simple. I can't believe none of them thought of it. Make the machine into an instrument. Make it into something that can be played and recorded so you can create even more melodies with it. I am a genius. This is what I was put on this earth to do. To bring the greatest machine instrument ever to life. This is why I've been abused, lied to, isolated, cheated on. Because I was smarter and better than all of them. They hated me because they knew my talent was too great for them. All of them tried to keep me down because of their hatred and their jealousy. They hated themselves because of what they saw in me. And so they turned their hatred towards me. But I continued to rise above it all, baby. This is why I'm here. This is why the machine chose me. I think I've had too much, too much. December 31st, 2023, James Vance. I'm not sure why I'm writing this. This whole place is going to go up in flames soon. 
I guess I gotta get the last of my thoughts out, villain monologue style. (laughs) (coughs) 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 My piano idea worked beyond my wildest dreams. I plugged it in and without thinking about it, I instantly played the melody. was beautiful and perfect for a brief moment and then she it appeared in front of me I thought it was a muse that had been speaking to me but this was something entirely different something eternal and powerful and terrifying. Her presence was overwhelming and I struggled to maintain my sanity. It, she, embraced me like a loving mother. She explained to me the purpose of the machine and praised me for being the first one to actually figure out how to bring her into existence. She explained that by recreating the melody, I had entered into a pact with her. I was to be her herald to spread her message with the world. In turn, she would punish those that had wronged me. When I tried to open my mouth to say something, everything went black. When I came to I was on the couch, and Gina was on the floor, lifeless. The words, a gift for my herald, was painted in blood and viscera upon the wall. The machine, which had been the size of a mini keyboard, was now the size of a grand piano. I was filled with dread. I may have hated Gina, but I never wanted her dead. I just wanted my freedom. (coughs) 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 I don't have much more time. I opened up the gas main a while ago and coated the machine and the book in gasoline 
just to be sure that none of it survives. She can't be allowed to return. And no more heralds need to be created. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Happy New Year, world. You're free of me. We hope you've enjoyed our special presentation of The Machine by Adira and Flynn Slattery. If you want to purchase this game yourself, you can find it at adira.itch.io slash the machine. The link will be in the show notes below. This episode features the following contributors in order of appearance. Josh Maltby as William Burson, Brandon Dingus as Cooper Monahan, Luke Davis as Sacred Eye, Olivia Latham as Diane Cartwell, Liz Allman as Dr. Leslie Field, and Scott Moore as Jamie Vance. If you enjoyed this and enjoy what we do, you can always telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about it. Word of mouth is still king. You can keep up with our socials on linktr.ee slash goblins and growlers you can also join our discord at bit.ly slash goblin discord and share your thoughts on our episodes and converse with other ttrpg enthusiasts we want to wish you a happy and safe halloween brandon and josh will be back in two weeks to talk about unpopular D opinions we'll see you then